0: Thank you for listening to this message from Resurrection Life Church in Granville, Michigan. We're going to be talking about relationships. How to build relationships, how to build families, how to have better relationships. And this series is going to be a lot of fun. Now, today, I want to talk to you about the last commission that Jesus gave the church. Now, he's about to go to heaven. And it's recorded in different gospels. And he tells the apostles what he wants them to do. Now, how many of you know, if you're gonna leave somebody, you're not gonna see him again for a really long time. You're gonna tell him what's important. And Jesus is really giving his heart to his disciples. In Matthew 28 and 19, it records Jesus saying, "'Go therefore and make disciples, not just Christians, "'but disciples of all nations.'" And, and literally in, in here, there's, there's the, the teaching here that it's not just individuals, but the kingdom of God doesn't just change people. It changes people, but it changes nations, right? It changes societies. It changes the way a society lives, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit. Mark records this, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Now, theologians call that the great commission, right? Now, in Jesus' mind, this is gonna be our top priority, right? In the book of Acts chapter one, Luke records it by saying you're gonna receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be witnesses unto me, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And interestingly, they tell us that what it actually means, not just go to Jerusalem first and then Judea and then Samaria and then the uttermost parts of the earth, but doing it all simultaneously, right? They call it the Great Commission. And in Jesus' mind, this is going to be the number one priority of his church. This is going to be the number one priority of Christians. Unfortunately, the Great Commission has become for many of us the great omission. All right. It isn't our top priority. In fact, it is even our second or third or fourth or fifth priority. It's down there on the list someplace like number sixty-four after weeding. All right. I don't know about you, but I see those weeds, you know, and I just I have a hard time getting out there. Pulling them out. Right. Not really a great priority. Now, we might think that as an individual, there's little we can do, but I want to talk to you about one individual who took this call very, very seriously. His name was William Carey, right? Now, he was born in 1761 in a small village in North Hampshire, England. His father was a schoolteacher. And even as a young boy, he loved languages. By the time he was 12, he had practically memorized the entire Latin vocabulary book. And he loved the outdoors. He loved trees and birds and bees. He just loved creation. In fact, he's 12 years old. He's climbing up a tree to get a bird's nest, and he falls down and breaks his leg. So they splinter it. A few months later, they take the splint off. First thing that he does is go back to the tree, climb up, go get the bird's nest. Young guy had tenacity, and he was going to need it in the future. At the age of 12, he left school. And finally, he settled on being a cobbler's apprentice. Now, a cobbler is a shoemaker. Now, there was a fellow apprentice named John War, and John was a Christian. And he began to witness to William Carey. And constantly, daily, witnessing, witnessing. After a period of time, Carey's heart softens. He receives the Lord, right? Now, he was immediately just on fire for God. Right, he loved God, loved the Bible, right, loved the lost, began witnessing, won his uh, brothers and sisters to Christ, right. Found a Greek book, right, and taught himself Greek. Now, any of you that have studied Greek, you know this. That's a miracle, right? That's a miracle in and of itself. So, by the time he's twenty, he is now no longer an apprentice; he's a cobbler, right, a shoemaker part-time school teacher and a lay preacher. And uh, as he was making shoes, he had a a map of the world on the wall and uh, he would be praying over the world and almost always had a book propped open, whether it was the Bible or a theological book, and he would be reading and making his shoes and praying for the world. He's invited to a meeting of pastors and when he gets to this pastor's meeting, he, you know, he's the youngest guy there and he stands up and, and he says, I've got a question. He says, uh, was the command that Jesus gave the apostles to teach all nations obligatory to all succeeding generations until the end of the world? Now, the man that was presiding over this pastor's meeting was Dr. John Ryland. Now he is famous. But you don't want to be famous for what he's famous for. He's famous for making a really dumb answer. That's what he's famous for. And so he says to William Carey, he says, young man, young man, sit down, sit down. You are an enthusiast. Now, in those days, an enthusiast was someone that believed that God could speak to you through the Bible or through his spirit. He says, you're an enthusiast. You just think God could talk to you through the Bible. And this is what he said. This is what made him famous in a bad way. He said, when God wants to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. In other words, he's just saying, if God wants people to save, he'll just save them. He won't need to use anybody, he'll just save them. Well, Kerry's unaffected, all right? He goes back and then he preaches a sermon. Now, now my next sermon series is relationships. Right? That's the title. Get a load of this title. An inquiry into the obligation of Christians to use means for the conversion of the heathen. That's the title. All right? Now he says, should we use means to convert the heathen? That's his question. All right? Should we preach to them? Uh, should we give them a track? Should we reach out to the orphans? Should we reach out to the hungry, to the destitute? to to those that are being oppressed by society. Should we do something, show the love of Jesus, right? Uh, So he preaches that sermon. And then just a short time later, he preaches this sermon, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. And he uses Isaiah 54 for his text, which says enlarge the place of your tent Let them stretch out the curtains of your dwelling. Spare not, lengthen the cords, strengthen the stakes, for you will expand to the right and to the left. And he preaches this sermon. And when he gets done, now he's preaching about, let's do something and let's reach people. And when he gets done, everybody's looking at him and they haven't done anything. So this is what he says. He says, lock the doors and don't let anybody leave. And they lock the doors. Maybe we should try that at the close of this one, huh? They just locked the door; they wouldn't let anybody leave. He said, "Now, now we just talked about we need to reach the heathen. We need to do something." So they stay for a couple hours, right? and by the time they unlock the doors, they have started the first mission sending organization in the world. Right? And now William Carey never thought this was going to happen, but in less than a year, he's on a boat on his way to India, where he would spend the rest of his life, all right? So they find this mission or found, founded the mission organization and he arrives in India, 1793, November the 11th. No idea the hardship he's gonna face. Two of his children died. It is seven years before he has his first convert. His printing press and type in 20 different languages are all gonna be burned. He lacks money there's isolation. Uh, constantly being hindered by the East India Company. Uh, so what did this guy do when he got there? Well, he translated the Bible into over 20 languages. He put together the first Sanskrit dictionary, started churches, he started schools. He started the first school in India for girls, the first school for all classes of people, the first college in the native language. Right? He was the first to speak up for women's rights. Right? He began to campaign immediately against child marriage. He began to campaign immediately against sati. Sati was the, when a man died, right, they would take his body and they'd burn it. And then they would, at the same time, they'd take his wife, they'd put him, tie her up and burn her alive with him so that he wouldn't get to wherever he was going alone. You know, he needed his wife along with him, right? He was the first to campaign against it. He was the first to campaign against infanticide, right? He was a botanist. Right. One of the three eucalyptus trees is called the Caria erbeca. Right, He introduced linear system of gardening to India. He was the first to introduce the steam engine in all of the subcontinent. He was the first to make indigenous paper to use in the printing press. He was the first to introduce the idea of saving banks. Now he said the Bible speaks against usury and the oppression of the poor. Now, the interest rates for borrowing in India at the time were anywhere from 36 to 72%. And he said, that's wrong. And so he introduces saving banks. He was a pioneer in media. Right? He was the father of printing technology in India. Had the largest printing press. He put out the first ever newspaper in the Oriental language. He began dozens of schools for children of all castes. Right? He was the first to form India's agriculture horticulture society in, 18, in the 1820s. Now, it was 30 years later before they founded one in England. He was way ahead, and he was the first crusader for women's rights right? to stop the oppression of women through polygamy, through female infanticide child marriage widow burning euthanasia forced illiteracy on all women he he stood against them right now when we look today right now we're looking today over 200 years back and again when he was there it seemed like he had such slow success 7 years without a single convert today there are millions and millions and millions of christians in india that trace their Christian heritage, right back to William Carey. He was one person who got a bunch of people to stand with him to follow the Great Commission. He believed in the power of the gospel to save a soul, to change people. And not even just to change people, but even to change a culture. Because when people change, the culture changes. He said, what needs to happen? We need to hear the gospel, believe the gospel, and begin to do the gospel. If you look at the New Testament, it really is like take the book of Acts. It is the story of people bringing the gospel. Acts chapter 1, Jesus is telling his disciples, Go and be witnesses to me. Acts chapter 2, Peter's preaching. Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are preaching. Acts 7, Stephen's preaching. Acts 4, Philip is preaching in Samaria, and then he goes and preaches in the desert to one man. Acts 9, Paul's preaching. Acts 10, Peter's preaching at Cornelius' house. In Acts 11, everybody's preaching everywhere they go. In Acts 12, here's trying to stop them from preaching. In Acts 13, they're preaching in Antioch and in Cyprus. In Acts 14, in Lystra and Derby. In Acts 15, they have a conference on what shall we preach to these Gentiles? In Acts 16, they're preaching in Philippi 17 in Berea and Thessalonica. In 18 in Corinth, in 19 in Ephesus, in Acts 20, in Troyes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's what it's all about. Every place that they're going, they're taking and they're preaching the gospel because they believe that the gospel will change a man or change a woman. Now, I was brought up in church. I don't know about you, but I, I mean, we went every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, and Wednesday afternoon for catechism. Now, I did miss a few Sunday nights because I pretended to be sick so I could watch Lassie. But other than that, I mean, we were there all the time, all right? Now, let me just say this. It didn't help. Right? It didn't penetrate. Right? It just didn't penetrate. So I'm 20 years old. I'm in college. And I think I'm going to be a history teacher. Right? And uh, in the afternoon, I'd go to the, the uh, gym and run around the gym and lift weights for a little bit. And there's this skinny guy. I mean, this guy was a skinny guy. Right? And just a little skinny guy. And he started to run, and then he would try to lift weights with me. And it was, like, it was really funny to watch him try to lift weights. Okay, But he did it not because he wanted to lift weights or run. He did it because he wanted to tell me about Jesus. He just tell me about Jesus, and tell me about Jesus, and tell me about Jesus. And then he said to me one day, he said, you know, there's a new church, and they're going to have a service at Jeremy's Party Place, and you should go. And I thought, church at Jeremy's Party Place? That sounds like fun. So I thought, I'll go. And then I'll tell him I went so I can get him off my back. So I go to this church, all right? There's 30, maybe 40 people there on a Sunday night, right? But it was different than anything I'd ever experienced. Now, not because there was a guitar or drums. It it, it was different. The songs were, this is what happened. I walked in, people had their hands up. They were worshiping God. And I remember the lady standing next to me, tears running down her face. And for the first time in my life, I felt the presence of God. I felt the presence of God. And uh, the pastor got up and preached. I don't know what he said. I'm sure it was good, but I don't know. So the service was done. I was just kind of hanging around. I didn't know what to do. I didn't really want to leave. And a guy that used to live across the street from me, Bruce Roberts is his name. He comes up to me. He said, oh, it's good to see you. And uh, did you like the service? And I said, yes. He said, do you like the worship? And I said, yes. Do you like the sermon? I lied. I said, yes, because I don't know what it was. All right. And uh, he just kept on talking to me and saying, Yes. And then this is what he said to me after a while. He said, "Would, Would you like to be forgiven of all your sins and know that you're going to go to heaven? Now, when he said that, this is what I thought. I thought, That is the stupidest question I have ever heard. I thought, Who wouldn't want to know that? Right? Who wouldn't want to know they're forgiven and going to heaven? But in my mind, this is what I'm thinking that can't happen. because where I went to church, this is, what I, this is what I understood, all right? Some people are gonna go to heaven and it doesn't matter what they do, they're gonna go. And some people are gonna go to hell and it doesn't matter what they do because they're going to hell. And if you're gonna go to hell, you're gonna go. And if you're gonna be saved, you're gonna be saved. Doesn't matter what you do, all right? That's what I, that's what I believe. And so he, says to, he said that to me and I said, of course I'd like that. And in my mind, I'm thinking that's impossible. So then he opens the Bible. Now, now let me just say this. When you find something in the Bible, you need to believe it no matter who it identifies you with or separates you from, right? When it's in the Bible, how many know that's God, right? Now I knew that much. And he opened the Bible to Romans ten thirteen, which says, whosoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he flipped down a few verses to verse nine, that if you will confess with your mouth, Jesus as your Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And he said, you can be saved today. You can know you're forgiven right now. He said, do you want to do that? And I said, yes. And he said, kneel down. We kneeled down a couple of chairs. He leads me in his prayer. I got up, never the same. Never, never, never. Now listen, it was the first time that I understood the gospel. And I believe this. When people understand the gospel, they want in. They want in. When you know you can be forgiven, you can be right with God. And I believe this, that those that give their life for the gospel, for the kingdom of God, they will never regret it. And they are the happiest. They are really the happiest people on earth. Now, Philip has this meeting, and he's preaching to a whole city. But then the Lord sends him out to the desert, and he meets one man in a chariot, and he preaches to that one man. Both of those accounts are in Acts chapter 8. Now, you and I, Jesus said we'll be witnesses to him. And that's whether we're at work, whether you're in a store, at Starbucks, school, in your neighborhood. We are to be witnesses to him. And somebody says, this is the terminal generation. I believe that. But let me tell you something. This is definitely your last generation. For us, this is it, no matter what. No matter what. I remember a number of years ago, we were, we were not in this building, in a previous building. And uh, we had just finished, I think it was the third morning service. Right? I gave the altar call. Right? At the end of the service, um, half a dozen, maybe eight or ten people came up. We prayed. And then afterwards, this young man sticks around. He's in his late 20s, right? And, and he says to me, he says, man, he said, this is so good. He said, I just needed to get right with God. He said, my wife and I were estranged. She says, we live out in Holland. He said, I'm going to go see her tonight. He said, and I'm going to just apologize to her. He says, and we are going to serve God together, and we're going to get things right. You know, and I prayed with them again, and he and two other guys take off, and they went out to Genesis. It was in the summer, day like today, one of them hot days. And they stop off at this little lake in Genesis, jump in, and he drowns. Now, he, he, they, they told me that night, you know, before the evening service, uh, they came back and some of the guys and said, look, you know, we went and, and he drowned this afternoon. And I mean, it shook me up. But here's what I realized. I said, we think we've got all kinds of time. But you do not know. You do not know how much time you've got. And, and I know that a lot of Christians think, well, I tried. I tried. But it just didn't work for me. It's just not something that I can do. We've all heard of Billy Graham. Well, his son is Franklin Graham, right? And he was reluctant to preach his first sermon. But they, they put a meeting together for him. Thousands of people are in attendance. He preaches a sermon. He gives the altar call. Listen, and nobody, there's thousands of people there. Nobody responds, not one person. It's bad for any preacher when nobody responds, But when you're Billy Graham's son and nobody responds like this, this is catastrophic. All right. And literally he swore he would never preach again. All right. And for the next several years, he really, he dedicated himself to Christian relief. And it was kind of like the beginning of what today is the Samaritan's Purse. You know, whether there's a catastrophe, you know, they would get involved. But he did not want to preach for several years. And finally, his friend, John Wesley White, persuades him to preach again. And they put together a campaign in Juneau, Alaska. And the place is packed. And it's packed with drug addicts, drunks, prostitutes. He preaches a sermon, gives an invitation, and literally People pour down to the altar. You know, he had completely given up. He had, he had sworn, I will. How many of you ever made a, that kind of a, things go wrong and you've made one of those, I will never agains. You know, most of us, he had like, I will never again. You know, Because you failed once doesn't mean that you're going to fail the next time or the next time or the next time. Now look, God sent Jonah to a city he sent peter to cornelius's house to everybody that was in the house he sent philip to one man riding on a chariot right it doesn't matter whether you're preaching to many or few i remember when jeannie and i went to be missionaries in mexico we consulted an old veteran missionary old i think he was like 55 (laughs) you know and we, we consulted with him and said, what what advice do you have? And, And he said to me, he said, well, he said, when you can preach to a thousand, preach to a thousand. He said, and when you can preach to a hundred, preach to a hundred. He said, but if you can't preach to a hundred, preach to 10. And if you can't preach to 10, preach to one. He says, preach to adults if you can, but if you can't preach to children, he says, do something, least you do nothing. He says, and if you will take a step out, he said, God will bless the steps that you take. God will bless your efforts well, we were down there as missionaries and living in an Indian village. I got invited to go way up in the mountains. And what this trip meant was about a four-hour ride down a two-lane highway, and then two hours of dirt roads. And then the road ended, and we parked in a little village called Tamala. And then we walked about two hours up a riverbed on the side of a river to a little village called Chikuiwakan. Now, this village is right on the river, church had gotten special permission and so they were fishing every day and by the way we, we ate well there we ate fish every day and fishing meant you take a stick of dynamite tie it to a rock light it throw it in the deep hole boom and then you get down river and collect fish right? so we're they're fishing every day i learned a new way to fish <laughs> i don't recommend trying that around here all right so every day we're preaching in the morning, preaching in the afternoon. In the evening, I had brought along a generator because there's no electricity. Right? There's no roads. There's no bathrooms. Um, a generator, a movie projector, screen genie had made, a bunch of trumpet speakers. And so we'd show a movie to people about Jesus and then preach and show a movie, preach, show a movie, preach, show a movie, preach. And we'd get done every night about midnight. And after the, the last night, we spent the night sleeping on the church floor again. Got up in the morning, packed her stuff, put the heavy stuff on a couple of, of uh, burros, a um, couple of mules, right? And uh, I grabbed my suitcase, and you know, I'm gonna carry my suitcase. Now, I'm like 27 years old, you know? Uh, back then, I was like 190 pounds. Those days are gone, babe. <laughs> Sorry about that. I'm trying to get back there, but it's work, all right? So, then this little guy, all right? Now, th- this guy... Is sh- he's a short mountain man guy. He's old. He's like fifty-five or sixty, you know. He's old, all right. And, and <laughs> how many? You know, when you're twenty-seven. Everybody's old. <laughs> so, so, so he comes. He says, "I will carry you. You know, your suitcase now. My suitcase weighs like twenty-five pounds. This guy, he's short. He's like this tall. He is skinny. And, and seriously, all wet. I don't think he weighed hundred pounds." Right? And he says, I'll carry that for you. And I says, I will carry that. He says, no, I will carry that for you. Well, I thought, I'm going to fight him. I'm a Christian. Okay. But I'm like, you know, you get tired, let me know. Right? So we start walking. You know? And he says to me, he says, no, tell me the gospel. Tell me the story again. So I thought, well, we've got a while. So I thought I'd just start in the beginning. So I start in Genesis 1. And I said, you know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he's right behind me. And here, he's, here he is. You know, en el principio, Dios creó el mundo el cielo. And I said it again. No, I'm talking in Spanish, and he's repeating everything. And I said, and God made a beautiful garden. And he says, and God made a beautiful garden. Everything's in Spanish. Okay? And then I said, and he put Adam and Eve in the beautiful garden. And he says, and he put Adam and Eve in the beautiful garden and told them they could eat of all the trees of the garden. And he told them they could eat of all the trees of the garden except for the knowledge of good and evil. And he says, except for the knowledge of good and evil. And we're going along, all right? Everything I say, he says, you know, and we're walking. And, and I'm talking, now this is, this is not some deep theological thing. If, if you've been to Sunday school, you know, first, second, third, fourth grade, you could have done everything I did, all right? And and he's driving me crazy, all right? Everything I say, he just repeats everything I say. He repeats everything I say, he repeats. And I I I said, okay, I said, why do you have to repeat everything? And he says, well, you know that I'm not from Chikuiwakan, the village you're preaching in. And I said, well, yeah, I kind of know that now, you know. He said, well, I'm from a village. He says, it's over a day's walk away. He says, in my village, heard you were going to be there. So they sent me, he said, and they told me to listen to everything that you say and I can't read. So I'm supposed to go back and tell them everything that you said. And so I want to remember it. So I repeat it now. And he said that, I mean, I about, I about lost it I about lost it. We, we kept going, he kept repeating but this time it didn't bother me at all. You know, I was glad he was repeating, hoping he could repeat it twice to get it right. You know, we want to be sure he, he gets it right. Uh, but there are people that are hungry for God all over. You know what? I was hungry for God and didn't know I was hungry for God. People would have looked at me and said, man, that guy has no hunger for God. Right? But the truth is that hunger was there. It was there. Now, Ephesians 2.10 says this. For we are God's own handiwork, his workmanship, recreated in Christ Jesus, born anew, that we may do those good works which God predestined that's planned beforehand for us, taking paths he prepared ahead of time, that we should walk in them, living the good life that he prearranged and made ready for us to live. Listen, the life God has for you, it's the good life. It's the best life. You know, when you live for God, you miss nothing. The devil tells you, you serve God. You will never have fun again all your life. The truth is you never had fun until you started serving him. It's the good life. But notice what he said. He said, you've been recreated in Christ Jesus that you may do the good works. Now, here's what most of us understand as Christians, that God saved us from our sins. We're forgiven and he he empowers us to walk away from, to be free from sin. We understand that. But here's what we don't understand. Is that he didn't just save you from something; he saved you to something. Right? It says he saved you to good works. We could say it this way: to represent the kingdom of God. Hey, when William Carey taught him how to farm, when he taught him how to make a steam steam boiler, when when he brought uh, women's rights to India, when he stood against widow burning, when he stood against infanticide, when he stood against forced illiteracy. How many of you know those are things that are true in the kingdom of God? Right? He's called us to good works. Now, the greatest of those good works is sharing the gospel, right? but he just didn't save you from something. He saved you to something. Now, listen, good works don't save you, but they're a result of our love for God, a result of our thankfulness to God, a result of a changed heart, right? That's where those good works come from, Now Jesus said this, Revelation 22. He said, behold, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his works. Hebrews 6, God's not unfair. He will not forget what you've done, nor of the love that you've shown for his sake in ministering as you still do to the saints. Jesus said in Mark 16, he said, go into all the world." Preach the gospel to every creature, to every creature. And he that believes and is baptized will be saved. It's uh, the abolitionist Elijah Joy Love, who was a Presbyterian preacher and preached strong against slavery, right Right from his pulpit. And Lovejoy was openly using a printing press and printing tracts and passing them out by the thousands against slavery, right? And there were a lot of people that were in opposition. He was continually being threatened, right? Finally, it came to a tragic head. An angry mob burned down his printing press and then hanged him. And many would have said that Elijah's life was a forgotten waste, just collateral damage in a tragic area. However, there was one young man among many that read Elijah Lovejoy's articles and was inspired to action. You know, that young man's name was Abraham Lincoln. You know, you never know who you're going to reach. Who who that person you share with is, who they're going to reach. Billy Graham tells the story of going to listen to Mordecai Ham. He's 16 years old. Mordecai Ham has put up a tent, and he goes to hear this preacher. And he thought, I'm going to just go hear this wacko. That's what he said. Right? And they get there, and it's packed. No room at all. So he says to his friend, let's get out of here. And an usher walked up to Billy Graham and his friend and put his arm around each one of them. He said, guys, I'm so glad you're here tonight. He said, I'm going to find a seat for you. And he took and made some people squeeze over and put Billy Graham and his friend right where the preacher could take a look at him. He gave the altar call that night, and Billy Graham gave his life to the Lord. Here's the interesting thing, I think. Nobody knows who the Usher was. Nobody knows who his name was. Seemed like it just looked small, forgotten act. But literally millions of people are going to be in the kingdom of God because of what that usher did. And you do not know who you're going to share with. You don't know the long-term effect. For more information about ResLife, please visit our website at reslife.org. If you have questions about ResLife or would like directions to visit us, please feel free to call 616-534-4923.